This is Up For A Chat with your hosts, Cindy O'Meara and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Cindy O'Meara. And I'm Kim Morrison, and I am delighted on behalf of the two of us to have an incredible guest on the show this week, Dr. Shadi Nabhan. Welcome to the Up For A Chat podcast. It is a delight to have you with us. It is my pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much, Cindy, and thank you, Kim, for having me on the podcast. True honor to be with you. Well, Well, I feel very privileged, and I know Kim does. This, to me, is an interview that uh, everybody needs to listen to with regards to um, Roundup and uh, the case that you were the expert witness at. What I find interesting is I was—I have to tell you this, Dr Shaddy, I was um, talking to a, a farmer recently in his 70s, cow farmer, uses Roundup to get rid of all of his um, weeds. And I said to him, I hope you use protection. (laughs) And he said, oh, I've been spraying Roundup for years, decades. Why would I do that? There's nothing wrong with me. Right. How do we change this uh, complacency about this chemical that obviously has been taken through the courts and is dangerous for, you know, for humans? Could you let us know how we can do that? Well, look, you're asking a very difficult question despite its simplicity on the surface. People are creatures of habit. And I think habits that have been engraved in us for years because of whatever notions and preconceived notions we've had, they're not frankly easy to change. I mean, It is almost like quitting smoking. If you've been smoking for years, it is very difficult to go and say, hey, quit smoking today. I think the way to um, try to um, foster change should actually go through uh, three ways. One way is education. You'll have when you go to someone and say, hey, I, I think you should do X, Y, and Z you have to explain the why. Just because you said so, it's not going to be sufficient. And you're not going to really gain that individual to your side unless you really educate and provide a rationale and a reason that resonates with people, right? I think that is clearly critical. Number two is provide an alternative to what that individual has been using a compound for. So sure, you know, if you want the person to stop using Roundup, offer that individual, this is what you could do instead. Because obviously they're using it for a particular goal or a reason. And if that reason is important to them, then they need to have an alternative so they can really apply that differently. Yeah. And number three, probably the third reason, which is really, I think, is is still important. So educate, provide an alternative. I think think sometimes you may want to bring examples of people that may have used a product like this and did not do well. 
you know, you've all encountered a very heavy smoker. Hey, my grandpa was a very heavy smoker. He smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. And it's like, well, nothing is wrong with me. But other people have had issues with smoking. So just because you, the person you're talking to, um, uh, Cindy, did not have any issue, does not mean that others don't and does not mean he won't have any issue. It's very classic example to a smoker who says, I know a lot of people who smoked forever and had no issues. And it's true. Some smokers, for whatever reason, they have no problem, but others do. This is not a justification. Just because somebody did not have a problem is not a justification to use a bad product. I mean, you know people who don't wear seat belts and don't necessarily die from car accidents. This is not an excuse not to wear a seat belt. It just means that maybe you got lucky. Maybe there are reasons that didn't happen to you. So these are the three things that I believe might help induce change in people who are resistant to change when it comes to Roundup. Shani, I just think we're both so excited to have you on the show because I think that can relate to all aspects of life. I know for a fact my daughter was struggling. She was a ballerina. She had lost a lot of weight. She was trying to sit into that norm. And no matter how hard we tried to get her to eat different things or try different things, it wasn't until she was explained the why and the rationale behind what her body needed in order to perform that she understood the reason to change. And then when this beautiful teacher gave her alternatives of what she could do in order to create more uh, nutrition, she actually got to really understand it. And what really tipped her over the edge was the examples of people who didn't do what was required to be an elite athlete. So I just first of all want to say how excited I am because that actually is where I have seen the biggest change in people. Cindy often asks people at workshops, if you were faced with a life-threatening illness or a disease of some sort, would you change? And everybody in the room puts their hand up. But we also know only one in 10 people actually do stick to that. Is that a statistic that's familiar to you in this world before we get into exactly what your book is about? Is that something that's familiar to you? And if so, why don't those other nine or 90% of people change? The statistics itself, uh, Kim, I'm I'm not entirely familiar with, but uh, it's not surprising. What you cited, uh, even without me knowing the exact statistics, uh, is not far-fetched, frankly. Two things. Um, Number one, you comment on the why. The why is very important. It is always you need to explain the why in every aspect of life. Frankly, even if you're dealing with teenage boys, teenage girls. It's just, you lose them if you say, this is what you have to do because I said so. So the why is critical and that's what you did with your daughter. So the same thing in a workshop, you're asking people about changing said, and you explain the why. Of course, they're all going to raise their hands. Yeah, why would, we, why would we not change? It's very clear. But then you come to execution. Execution becomes very challenging. And, and I think there are usually several reasons Uh, I would say, number one, uh, people tend to believe that they are, it doesn't happen to me, it happens to the next door neighbor, for whatever reason. It it just, we we assume we are immune from these issues. We're not going to get cancer, you know, the other person gets cancer. Until it hits you, until it hits you or your family, this assumption that you are immune to something 
is is there it's part of the human nature and the second thing i think it's an individual issue and it's very difficult to know uh, what are the barriers to change for every individual person without getting to know that person are there cultural issues are there um, social issues are there financial issues are there it's it's hard to know so it's almost you really want to provide the platform uh, in general, explain the why, and then provide alternatives, provide education, and then hopefully you can provide even sometimes one-on-one or group counseling and, and, and understand what's happening on, on an individual level. Gabby, we haven't really introduced to the audience who you actually are. We just got so excited, got straight into it because we know who you are. And we understand why you do what you do. So, you know, the first, like, I think the first thing that I would love to ask you right now is that could you explain to the audience what you did in the past and how you got into uh, being an expert witness on the Monsanto cases and how you went to write your book? I, I know that's a big question, but just in the beginning, just to let people know who you are, uh, why, you know, who got you into those cases. I was blown away because I've been following those Monsanto cases uh, for since 2018 and I was actually um, following about Roundup since about 2015. I uh, did a documentary called What's With Wheat and I just happened to um, do some research and wanted to interview Dr. Stephanie Seneff as well as Vandina Shiva uh, and some incredible people that all talked about glyphosate and its effect on uh, gluten intolerances and wheat. So I didn't even get into the case of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma because in 2015 that wasn't that wasn't a case. So could you explain uh, who you are, why you're an oncologist, and I think you also do histology. Is it histology or hematology? Yeah, hematology yeah. and oncology. Hematology. Could you explain um, how you got into that? You know, what took you from, uh, you know, a young man that decided this is what he was going to do with his life? Oh, boy, young. As you just said the word young. I'm glad that the listeners are not going to see my face. <laughs> maybe, maybe we could fold them by my, by my voice. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a cancer specialist. I took care of people who are diagnosed with cancer and with blood disorders. And the area of expertise I developed over the years has been non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And non-Hodgkin lymphoma, or lymphoma in general, lymphomas are a form of cancer that usually affect the lymph glands in the body as well as the immune system and sometimes the bone marrow, which is the uh, storage in the body that uh, produces the cells that circulate in our blood. And uh, with that, I've developed some trials. I've treated patients with these diseases and, and, and became an expert in that particular area. So when the information about the uh, link between glyphosate, which is the main ingredient in Roundup, uh, being a probable human carcinogen surfaced in 2015. And subsequently, the data was most compelling 
between linking glyphosate and non-Hodgkin lymphoma, um, somehow some legal firms heard about my name and uh, they they reached out to me asking me to look at the evidence and whether I would consider helping them and helping the patients that they represented who were suing Monsanto because they alleged that their non-Hodgkin lymphoma was developed because of their heavy exposure to Roundup. Um, and I looked at the evidence and I became more convinced with time. So that's how I ended up um, uh, testifying in the first ever three Roundup cases that occurred in 2018 and 2019. But going back to your original question, um, um, Cindy, as to why I became an oncologist, and, and I actually do talk about this in the book because I thought maybe readers would like to, to know a little bit about what got me on that route. Um, I recall this vividly. This was um, in 1995. I was doing my internship year uh, here in Chicago at Loyola University. And it was my four months of uh, being on the inpatient unit. And I was walking into the room to see uh, a patient and just basically to visit with her and get her vitals and what happened overnight before my attending physician comes in. Uh, and she was in her mid forties, um, very beautiful, looks like an angel. And I still uh, remember uh, her face. And um, basically I was, I walk in and I took her vitals and, and she asked me suddenly, she said, um, do you think I will live until Christmas? And I was just taken aback by this. I was not really sure what to say i was not prepared to answer that question and and despite the fact that she had ovarian cancer and she was not doing well she smiled at me and she said you know don't worry you don't need to answer this question you can actually i just look forward to seeing your smile tomorrow morning and i was i was just struck by the human nature of the relationship between a cancer specialist and a patient um this what drew me first before the science, frankly. I just realized that the relationship between a patient with cancer and the oncologist that is taking care of that patient is so noble and so different than any other relationship between a doctor and a patient. When we are faced with cancer, we are at the most vulnerable time in our life. And Putting your trust in somebody who cares about you at the most vulnerable time in your life is so noble that it only happens between an oncologist and their patients. So I was um, very humbled by this and the human connection drew me first and then subsequently the science, the advances and everything happening in cancer care uh, made me even more interested in becoming an oncologist. It's just such an incredible story and one that just warms my heart from the perspective of often science and medical world is very disconnected to the human, emotional, spiritual side of life. So to hear, I'm sure, with all noble intent, all doctors have that wish to serve and help other people. That's why you guys get into medicine. I'm curious then, before we go into your book a little bit more, 
cancer itself, is it more that we see more today? Is it there's more cancers and different varieties of cancer than ever before? Or is it that we're recording better and we're actually able to look at the statistics of what cancer is? Could you explain that to us? Very smart question, Kim, and, and very important. In fact, I have to tell you, this I'm not pitching my second book, but I do have a book coming out next year on demystifying cancer because of all of the questions that people have about cancer. And it is about talking to patients and families that they go through the journey with cancer. But you already answered the question, kind of, because let's step back and try to understand what cancer is. Literally, if you think about cancer, it is an overgrowth of cells that don't die naturally. So you have this imbalance between cell survival and cell death. So we have more cells growing, less cells dying, and tumors evolve and they become cancerous. And cancer can occur in any organ. Any organ in our body is composed of cells. So if something tips off these cells, and they start growing more or not dying at all, if something happens, then this actually leads to imbalance between cell survival and cell death, and cancer could evolve. So it could develop in any organ in our body. And the important thing about this is that we should not compare cancers to each other because the treatment is different, the prognosis is different, the causes are different. So ovarian cancer is different than breast cancer. These are different than colon cancer, than prostate cancer. But the common denominator is that the balance in the cells that compose this organ changed. Now, what tips off that balance? We'll talk about that because it could be internal factors and external factors. But going back to your point, why are we seeing more cancers? I think there are probably a variety of reasons for that. But one of them is you already alluded to. We are doing a better job in registering the cases. Lots of countries, lots of cities, there are registries for cancer. So if you're a doctor and you diagnose a patient with cancer, you have to report that to the government or to a registry or somewhere where people are actually able to actually tell, for example, that this cancer has been registered or has actually occurred. The other thing that is really important for us to also talk about is screening. So as you know, uh, Kim, um, that we screen for certain cancers more, so we are able to detect them more. So women undergo screening for cervical cancer, for breast cancer, for colon cancer, men for colon cancer, for prostate cancer, and now we do screening for lung cancer. So by screening more people and by looking more for something, you are more likely to find it. Now, the caveat to this, by the way, that sometimes we may find something that may not be clinically relevant, may not be really causing problems. So you're really finding something, but it's not really going to cause a lot of issues and you don't know what to do with the information. But that is why we're having more cancers. Number one is we're detecting it more. We're screening it more. Uh, we are registering more. And the last part is maybe there are some changes in our dietary habits, the environments that we're living in. Lots of things that we are using today were not present 40 years ago and 30 years ago. People argue that you know we had a healthier lifestyle. 
back then uh, there was less obesity there was uh, people exercised more uh, you know there's so many other things that have actually occurred and roundup is one of them obviously but uh, maybe all of these are leading to more cases of cancers that we are recording and diagnosing such a powerful answer and but there's one little element we didn't touch on and I'm, I'm really interested to hear your take on this one then our emotions our beliefs our um, state our stress levels all of these things why is it certain why is it someone can get breast cancer and someone can get a different cancer and then of course when we throw in the environmental factors of more toxins more chemicals a higher chemical load the endocrine disruptors that we're we are lathering on our bodies and into our diets how come we get a certain cancer or is that not yet known so certain cancers have some reasons that that they cause right i mean it's kind of strange when you think about it sometimes we don't have always all the answers to everything I, I wish we were that smart but for example let's take something as simple as smoking well it is very well linked to lung cancer it is very well linked to bladder cancer but for example there's to my knowledge then there's no link between smoking and brain cancer there's no linkage between smoking and no kidney cancer or prostate cancer so why certain hazards or certain compounds are linked to some cancers versus others uh, i don't think it's clear uh, there's some linkage between alcohol and breast cancer and and and, and so on so i think that we have done a good job in identifying things that we consume or get exposed to that increase risk of certain cancers but we don't fully understand why some of these hazardous compounds cause one cancer versus another um, that is that is not yet clear in some situations we have answers but we don't have all the answers unfortunately I was listening to uh, Kennedy, um, I think it's Robert Kennedy Jr. I was listening to him recently and he talked about the cases that you were the expert witness in. And he said each side had experts from Stanford or Oxford or where, you know, from Harvard. And, and it was just a matter of who had the best case. So was there an oncologist? that was against what you were saying? Or were you the only oncologist that was the expert witness in the case? No, there was. Of course there was. And uh, and all of these uh, actually are detailed, including what happened uh, with the other oncologists in, in the book that we talked about. Um, I, think, I think it is not uncommon to have sometimes divergent views uh, amongst healthcare professionals on on various areas, I believe I I heard uh, RFK Jr.'s comment on this, and what I don't agree in his statement, he did go afterwards to say that, well, they are paid experts, and if you pay enough, they're going to say what you want. I disagree with that. I hope this is not true. I nobody has paid me for my opinion; they paid me for my time but not for my opinion. My opinion is not for sale. 
my opinion is based on facts and based on science and based on information and this is not for sale so so of course the um defense and in this situation monsanto was which is the company that was bought subsequently by bayer uh, had to retain witnesses uh, expert witnesses that will support their views so they can actually counter what i had to say and sure there are other oncologists out there that are going to say well roundup is safe it does not cause non-hodgkin lymphoma and the data that says so is um limited and is not accurate and uh, they bring those on and then it becomes almost who is going to be more convincing to the jury so the legal system in the united states that these cases were in front of a jury so we can say whatever we want but ultimately the jury has to decide and if the jury believes my argument versus the other argument then we win the case and vice versa but I also have to say that obviously I was not the only witness. There were lots of other witnesses on the side of the patients, uh, epidemiologists, toxicologists, and other folks. But from a cancer specialist perspective, I was the only one in these initial three cases. Mm. And when you consider that, you know, the, they were the three top cases and the, the amount of money that was awarded to um, those four people because one was a couple, uh, and the amount of money that was awarded to it. And then, of course, there were appeals and and everything mm -hmm. was happening to it. And now I hear, and, and I think I read it um, from your information, that there's 100,000 people in, a, in like in part of this class action against Monsanto and or Bayer. And now they have um, spent nearly $11 billion. It just... I just don't understand how this many people with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and they still haven't, you know, made changes. And I heard that this year was the year that they were going to take it off at least the domestic market um, but still allow it to be sprayed on genetically modified foods and desiccants for grains and legumes. Um, and I know in Australia we, and this is what the, we're seeing an increase in Australia in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma because we have 596 registered products with glyphosate in it, and that's registered by the Australian Pesticide and Veterinary Medicine Authority. We have 70 food foods that are allowed to have glyphosate sprayed on them, around them or near them. And do you believe with and, and I know that glyphosate is the most um, ubiquitous of all of the pesticides out there. Do you believe we're going to see an increase in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? And in your career in the US, have you seen uh, an, uh, an increase in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. I think going back to the trials, maybe because you started there, um, uh, Cindy. Yes. These trials, the first three trials were so important because they were the first trials ever against Monsanto and Roundup. Monsanto has been sued before for other reasons, but for Roundup, these were the first three trials. The significance of that was huge. In 2018, there was so much media coverage to this when this started. I mean, the press everywhere, TV and Wall Street Journal, everybody was covering what's going on. 
Because also at the same time in 2018, it was when Bayer was closing on the acquisition of Monsanto. And they paid $63 billion to acquire Monsanto. And they underestimated the impact of litigation and the impact of the lawsuits that were actually mounting at the same time that they were acquiring the company. So subsequently, the share prices of the, 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 the share the price of each share of Bayer dropped down by two thirds. So they lost a lot of market cap. And eventually you fast forward, the CEO of Bayer lost confidence. Uh, uh, the shareholders lost confidence in him. And now there's a new CEO for Bayer that started June of this year. So, so these three trials were so important. The second of which, by the way, the Hardeman trial, which was in 2019, was the federal trial. So it was very critical, and it was the trial that Monsanto lost, and they chose to try to take this all the way to the Supreme Court, to the United States Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court in the United States refused to hear that trial. So a lot of these things, these four plaintiffs and three trials were so critical because they set the stage to expose so much of what's going on behind closed doors with Monsanto, with Roundup. And for the first time, at least people started knowing about what's happening. They may, they may disagree with it, but at least we got a chance to tell our side of the story and we won the first three cases. And these led to the subsequent settlement that you mentioned with over 100,000 patients in the US who were diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And the settlement was for $11 billion plus, <clears throat> which was one of the largest product liability uh, settlements in the United States history. So a lot of things obviously um, happened because of these three trials. Now, subsequently, several things happened, and you alluded to that. One is Bayer announced in uh, late 2022 that they are going to withdraw Roundup from the domestic market, like you said, so where uh, you know, residential people don't have to use, can't uh, buy it, but the farmers can buy it and the pesticide applicators can buy it. But unfortunately, I can go to the store and find it right now. So they have not fulfilled that part of the bargain yet. I can. They said they are not uh, admitting any liability, by the way. They just want to withdraw it because they want to minimize the litigation uh, consequences. And your listeners can find all of this, by the way, on the Bayer website and, and their media and press release. They issued a press release at the time with this. But it is still in the market. It is still there, and uh, I'm waiting to see that actually happening and whether they are going to fulfill what they announced. It also does not have a warning label. So there is no warning label. And in my view, when you don't have a warning label on a hazardous compound, you are depriving consumers from choice. You can go and buy five packs of cigarettes today and smoke them. You are within your rights to do that if you choose to do it. But at least you know there are risks associated with it. And you decided to take on that risk and you're free to do that. But people don't believe there are risks with Roundup. They don't believe there are risks with glyphosate. So essentially, you are depriving, depriving them from making a choice when they are utilizing a, a, a hazardous compound, in my opinion. And I think that is really important. So there is no warning label to this day. So that's really the significance of these trials, the significance of the settlements and 
and it is still being sold. Uh, I'm hoping that it is going to be drawn from the domestic market at some point, but I have not seen it, unfortunately. And it's not happening here at all. Um, if you go into any of any stores uh, and, and even, I think, grocery stores, you can still buy uh, products with glyphosate in it. Like I said, we've got 596. I think America's got 720-something registered products. But I've been... But what you can do, actually, what I heard, and, and Cindy, uh, the Australian, the equivalence of the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA in the U.S., there's an Australian counterpart to that, and they have uh, they have always said glyphosate is safe, and hopefully there's advocacy there, and there are people there like yourself, like Kim and others who can actually try to lobby and say, hey, you know, maybe it's not, and and you know, I, I believe there are probably some, maybe there are some legal lawsuits there. I don't know, but there's a possibility. I think there are some legal lawsuits happening, but I do know that the APVMA, which registers um, pesticides and um, like it, all the chemicals and the, as, you, as it says, the Australian Pesticide and Veterinary Medicine Authority, so they do veterinary medicine as well as agricultural chemicals, they're a paid industry or they're paid by the industry as opposed to being a completely, uh, you know, a private or a government paid institution and I think that that's where the problem is and when you have a look at their budget it's billions of dollars that they are paid so they're paid to register a product they're paid a yearly subscription to remain registered and then they're paid a percentage of all sales and when I tried to get information out of them regarding how much are you making on glyphosate alone, those 596 registered products? Um, they won't tell me. I just, you know, but I have to get a freedom of information um, thing going and I've just never done it. It's just not been a, a priority for me, even though I've asked for the information. But what concerns me and, uh, and what I have seen, so I've been in this industry 43 years. I've been a nutritionist. I've consulted uh, you know, from the 1980s right through to now. And back back when I was consulting, before Roundup was being used as a desiccant and there was no um, genetically modified Roundup-ready um, crops, before that I didn't have many people come to me with gut issues. Um, and now I feel like Every person I speak to now has some sort of gut issue. So with regards to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you mentioned that the immune system, bone marrow and lymph glands are all involved in that. So how does the gut and the microbiome, because we know that um, back in, I can't remember the date, that it was patented as a, as a broad-spectrum antibiotic, glyphosate. So how does the microbiome uh, affect not only non-Hodgkin's lymphoma but other issues we're now seeing across the board with humanity since this um, product has been used all over the world? Yeah, you know, I think I think one of the things probably for listeners will be um, important to to kind of set the stage is going back to the mid '90s when uh, Monsanto introduced Roundup Ready seeds. 
these are genetically modified. Uh, again, what, what they did is they, um, you know, they did some genetic modification to the crops, where now the crops and the seeds are resistant to the to Roundup's effect. So if you're a farmer, you are able to spray Roundup to kill the weeds, but you're also having no issues if the Roundup gets on the crops and on the seeds because they were modified to resist the activity of Roundup, so they were still growing despite being sprayed. And the farmers are able to harvest and, and do the things that they need to do. But what that meant is that you are spraying Roundup and glyphosate on pretty much everything, on corn, on wheat, on cotton, alfalfa, everything, soybean. And where does that end up? This end up, you're going to make cereal and bread and other things that people are eating and uh, consuming. So this happened in the mid-90s, and this led to an explosion of use of Roundup, by the way, where it's being sprayed pretty much everywhere because no, in fact, that's when you start seeing all of these airplanes that, you know, airplanes over the cornfields, and they're just spraying everything because there's no issue anymore. You, you have the Roundup Ready seeds, and, and this were also, as you know, as I just said, introduced by Monsanto. But I think the downstream effect of that is that you are you are uh, having glyphosate in the diet. And while I did not research that specifically because my area of expertise is cancer and lymphoma, and I testified to lymphoma and cancer, which was the subject of the first three trials, but I think the more I learn about the, the ubiquitous use of Roundup and the facts being spread everywhere, it certainly should make us all pause and step back and think, is it possible what we are seeing in terms of gut issues that you mentioned, Cindy, and in terms of you know, hypersensitivity, in terms of all of the, some of the autoimmune diseases that we are seeing, is it possible that some of this is related to glyphosate that is now in the diet? It is literally in the diet. So I think the answer to this, it's possible. It is something that people should pay more attention to. They should research more. And the way this is being researched is by looking at diets and microbiome, which you mentioned, and, and trying to find, is there a link between what we are seeing in the microbiome and the evolution of certain cancers and autoimmune disease? Uh, not an area I focused on uh, myself, have not researched it extensively as I should have, but I certainly, as you just articulated, it's certainly something that should be looked at because how could you not, now that you know that glyphosate is everywhere in your diet? I love how you're, you think and the way your answers are so measured. Like, I have to tell you, <laughs> I get very passionate and get very excited about this topic. And um, I'm really... And you should. It. And you should. We need people like you who are advocates, who care about patients, who are researching this. Like I said, it's critical. How could you not research something that is being now sprayed all over our food? Mm. It must be researched. Yeah, most definitely. So moving forward with the cases, are you still the expert witness uh, in those cases? Because I remember you were given 
um, reading about that you were given a heap of information or maybe I listened on a, a podcast that you were on. Um, you were given a lot of information in the beginning and when you read all the information, you were quite convinced by, you know, what was happening. So moving forward, are you part of the uh, cases that are coming up? So um, I'm not right now because I feel like I've done my job uh, mm. by, um, you know, as a medical oncologist, I never did this for financial gain, um, frankly, although obviously I was paid for my for my time. But, um, you know, I've written a book about it. I hopefully the book is going to be read by a lot of people who are interested in understanding the science, the epidemiology and the stories behind the science. Um, I don't have the bandwidth to continue doing with all of the additional cases, but I think I can probably share with you that Monsanto has become very strategic in deciding which cases they take to court and which cases they settle. So they've settled, as you know, over 100,000 cases. Mm -hmm. But Monsanto did win seven cases after these three cases that they lost. But it doesn't matter because these cases that they won were weak cases that were brought against them by the plaintiffs, in my opinion. And they are very choosy which cases, I mean, this I'm not a legal expert, but they're very choosy in deciding which cases to take to court. So as you know, there are, uh, when you look at the United States demographics and, and where they are, they will look at, at the, you know, at the city where the trial is going to be at. Is the jury going to be more favorable to the defense versus the plaintiff? What is the jury pool looks like? Um, who are the judges? Are the judges more likely to lean towards plaintiff versus defense? So they do a lot of due diligence beforehand, where when they go to a court case, it would be a court case that they are more positioned to win because all what they have to do is win the jury and cast doubt in the jury's mind. Because the plaintiff has to prove, and the defense doesn't have to prove anything. They just have to prove doubt. But here's what I would say. What I would say is the following. If you are not guilty, you're not going to pay over $11 billion. I mean, call me crazy. I'm not an economist. But if you had to pay over $11 billion, then you're probably guilty. Number two, you had to pay millions and millions and millions of dollars for legal fees. Mm. Number three, you've lost market cap, share prices. You, the shareholders don't believe in you. They've, you've lost the CEO confidence. A lot of things have happened. So whether they win five cases, two cases, or seven cases, at the end of the day, when you look at everything together and how they've actually handled everything, in my opinion, Monsanto is guilty, and they at least three trials have shown them to be guilty, and guilty of malice, guilty of not doing the right thing. There were punitive damages that were awarded against Monsanto. The, the 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 third case, which was the couple, the elderly couple, it was one billion dollars each. This is big, so they're guilty as far as I'm concerned. Can I ask you then? This book that you've written, Toxic Exposure: The True Story Behind the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice, 
you've had incredible feedback from many different people, and a lot of people are getting a lot from it. Is it written for the scientist, the lawyer, or is it written for those of us that are really interested in knowing what we can do to share this incredible knowledge? It is absolutely not written for the scientist. It is not written for doctors. It is not written for lawyers. It is written for all of us people because a lot of us, we are concerned humans and citizens, whether we have degrees behind our name or don't. I wrote this this book specifically for the non-medical and non-legal profession. It is a story. I wrote this as a story. It is the story of three trials and how they actually come to fruition. What happened in the courtroom? You're going to read a lot of courtroom drama, lots of exchanges between the lawyers and the witnesses. You're going to see as if you're just sitting and just watching a deposition and what's going on and you're imagining what happened in the courtroom. And in certain situations where I had to use a medical terminology, it was immediately explained because my goal was to reach the broadest audience possible. I did not want to write a textbook. I did not want to write a medical book. Those are actually, frankly, boring. I wanted to write a book that is appealing to everybody, no matter what their background is, no matter whether they know much about Roundup or not but appealing in a sense that's going to make them hopefully take action. It's going to make them question regulatory agencies. I want people to ask questions. Just because the EPA said something is safe, is it really safe? And I'm going to, I provided evidence. I provided information about this that's going to make people ask questions. And, and I hope um, that I've I hope I successfully was able to convey this information to the broadest audience possible. Well, we think you're incredible and we absolutely uh, revere all of the work that you're doing. Uh, I'd be really also interested to know in the book, uh, we haven't had a chance to read it. We've done a lot of looking into it and we cannot wait to get our little pause on it. But I'm interested to know also for the mum at home, the, the parents doing the everyday, the beautiful family on weekends that get into their garden, the person who's got their own little veggie patch in their corner of their house. How would your book help us? How do you, do you give us some answers? Do you give us the education, the alternatives, and then the how-to? Is that also included in the book? I think probably that's one of the shortcomings of the book that uh, I did not necessarily provide uh, a logical alternative, although I did comment on what some uh, patients told me in terms of what they are doing. Um, uh, the book focuses on these uh, three trials, specifically what happened, and and I think it's going to be very intriguing for people to ask a lot of questions. But... Um, Kim, I think what you're what, what you're inquiring about is very critical. So for the folks at home and on the weekends and what they're trying to do, the first thing I think they need to be aware of is that this is not good for you. Glyphosate uh, as a chemical in Roundup uh, could be harmful. And if you absolutely 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 insist and 
you're very stubborn and you want to use it, you want to use Roundup, which I don't recommend, you must use protection in terms of wearing gloves and not wearing shorts and, and making sure that you don't get exposure to the skin. Because glyphosate is um, linked with surfactant and both compounds cause the uh, Roundup. And surfactant obviously leads to a lot of uh, more absorption through the skin and it goes into the body. Um, and number two is consider alternatives. I've heard a lot of people using vinegar and water and, and other alternatives to actually get rid of weeds. Uh, talk to your friends, colleagues, and, and ask what should we actually use differently. So minimize exposure. If you must expose, use protection. Try to not be exposed at all if you can. Seek alternatives. And I think it's a big opportunity for entrepreneurs, for people who really are innovative to say, look, there's a huge market for this. People need this. And we have something that if we can actually bring something much better, we are going to help people. And I think there's an opportunity there to do a much better job in giving consumers an alternative that is much safer. Well, I just want you to know, Dr. Chatty, that um, I have a festival of food and farming. So I have, um, once I found out about Roundup and glyphosate, I realised our food wasn't safe. And so I bought uh, 60 acres and uh, we haven't used a chemical on it since we bought it eight and a half years ago. And we grow all the fruit, vegetables, meat, eggs, uh, herbs, everything we can um, in order to feed the family so that uh, we are not being exposed to this chemical. The problem is, is that I know both of my neighbours do spray it, but they're very uh, pointed in their spraying. They don't do the, you know, the plane over. And so I've created uh, the Festival of Food and Farming to show people how to do this. So if anybody's listening and they want to come, uh, then we are actually doing this in Australia uh, in late August. And you just have to look that up on Google and you'll you'll find out how to grow your own food on any level from a big farm to a small farm. So um, I'll just take up that slack with your book. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I really, I, I, I think that what, what you're doing is amazing. And the more I know about your advocacy and your passion, both of you in terms of how you want to help people mm. and provide all of this information, it is amazing. Think about how many people out there they they just look let me there are some people who know but they just refuse to change mm -hmm. and there are people who just don't know and i think your strategy would differ based on which is which type of person you're dealing with the people who don't know you must educate you must reach out and explain and and teach and and, and then the other ones are the people like well let me explain to you why you should change what are the alternatives let me show you what i've been doing for so many years and how things are going and i think people will be inspired by knowing this uh, i still have faith that a lot of people by understanding the why and by educating are willing to make a change because it does affect their health and the health of their loved ones Mm, I, I agree with you entirely. And now where we started the the whole podcast up with, with me telling you about a, a farmer, I'm actually going to take your three steps and I'm going to have a chat to him again. So thank you. Well, I think um, have him check out the book. I think he will be surprised by the information that, that, that uh, he will find because there's really a lot. I mean, 
you know, I, I go through, for example, um, I'll share this quick story uh, from the book. So the EPA in the late, in the early 80s, the Environmental Protection Agency in the early 80s did say that glyphosate is potentially carcinogenic. Wow. They did say that. It was actually labeled as possibly carcinogenic. And they demanded studies from Monsanto to actually confirm that it does not cause cancer. And Monsanto did not do these studies, and it went back and forth. And several years later, the EPA dropped their demand for their studies. They dropped their demand. I wish if I can find the excerpt, I would read it for you. But they dropped their demand for the studies. And subsequently, the glyphosate was changed to completely safe by 1987 or something, without any additional information. What is striking is if you're going to change a category of something that is hazardous to completely safe, you must have some new information to change your opinion. But they change without additional information. So you must, uh, you know, you have to think about this. This is crazy. The other thing that might be intriguing to your listeners is that in the Roundup became commercially available in 1974. And in 1974, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, was a small agency, was not as big and did not have as many people as they have right now. So it was a smaller agency. So they did not, did not have a lot of resources. But what's interesting is that they reviewed the toxicology studies and Monsanto outsourced the toxicology studies to an outside company called IBT. And IBT was subsequently found to be a fraudulent lab. They fudged data. They made up data. And actually, the founders of that lab were subsequently prosecuted. So your listeners can Google all of this. And it's all in the book, by the way. So it's like, you know, it's, it's right there. So you have toxicology studies from a lab that was prosecuted, that they made up data, and you never repeated these studies. And so there's so much out there that are red flags. And what is striking to me is we should always err on the side of safety. So sometimes you may not be 100% sure, right? I mean, you may say, well, I don't know, maybe yes, maybe no. But you always have to put worst case scenario and say, well, if I'm not sure, maybe I should err on the side of safety and assume that it's going to be bad until you've proven me it's not. I mean, this is something that a lot of people are going to be exposed to. So I respectfully disagree with the EPA's position on glyphosate safety. I do not agree with them. I think they got that wrong. And I hope that one day they are going to reverse course and they tell people that it is possibly a problem. I never said, by the way, that glyphosate causes cancer in everybody. I never said that every cancer is caused by glyphosate. All what I said is in some patients that have non-Hodgkin lymphoma, there's a possibility that Roundup may be the cause in some of these patients. Mm -hmm. And all what Bayer could do and Monsanto could do is put a label and say, look, Roundup has glyphosate and glyphosate is a probable carcinogen. And they have not done that yet. Hmm. Can, I just, can I ask you in this situation, Shadi, you're just... We are really blown away here. What particularly disturbs me is that there's a company or a corporation called Monsanto. It sounds like the more money you have, the more harm you can do in many instances, or the more control you think you have, or you can make these problems disappear. But 
I we I interviewed a woman not long ago who was a political scientist who said the worst thing that happened in our society is corporate money drove political campaigns. And we can go right back to even aspartame and all of those kinds of things that were taken out off the market and then brought back in by public demand. And depending on who grandfather clawed in certain things, it was just as a as a everyday human being, we don't seem to be able to have control of what these people are doing. And there doesn't seem to be a conscience like someone like yourself that's really caring and Cindy and myself that want the world to be a better place. In your humble opinion, a father of two beautiful twin boys, a man who really wants to do better and give us all to make humanity a better place, is there hope for all of us? Do you want me to say what you want to hear and listeners want to hear or what I really think? <laughs> I think what you really think would be really helpful. I think, uh, um, look, Kim, there is hope. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a cancer specialist. Uh, I've taken care of hundreds and hundreds of patients. So absolutely there is hope. But I do think it would be foolish not to assume that money and economics dictate politics and dictate a lot of what happens in healthcare. I mean, you know, publicly traded companies, they live by the stock price and they die by the stock price, right? I mean, just like you're, you're accountable to your shareholders. I, I, I think that um, my hope is usually uh, directed towards two sectors in our society, and it is not in the manufacturer sector. My hope is, number one, in our regulatory authorities and regulatory agencies. These are agencies that their job is to protect the environment and to protect people. That is their job. That is what they get paid to do, and I want them to do it right. I do have hope in those. The other people I have hope in is people like yourselves, the advocates people who are really want to go out there and tell people and educate people and do workshops and do some seminars and just educate people because that is very important. And I think if you put those two together, there's absolutely hope that we can reverse course. But I don't believe we are ever going to live in a society where money does not talk where money does not bring power, where money does not bring lobbying. I mean, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in, you know, in, in the U.S., there's billions of dollars spent on lobbying in Washington, D.C., because you want to get your agenda through. You want to get the laws that are going to help your uh, shareholders and your constituents and all of that, uh, that thing. So, so there's an entire profession called, um, I work as a lobbyist. There's something like, what, what do you do for a living? I'm a lobbyist in Washington. Well, what does that mean? I get paid to get the politician to execute on laws that are going to help the people who hired me. That's what the lobbyist does. So uh, I don't have hope that the lobbyists are going to go away or lobbying is not going to happen. But I do hope, have hope that we can influence change uh, as advocates and that we can hopefully put pressure on the regulatory agencies that they need to do a better job in looking at the evidence, looking at the science, and put people's safety foremost at the top of their agenda. 
music to our ears. Thank you. Thank you so much on behalf of us and every single person listening for you being brave and courageous and bright and intelligent enough to actually share this story in your beautiful book. We know you also have a podcast. Perhaps you could finish up by telling people how they can get hold of your beautiful books, Demystifying Cancer, and of course, Toxic Exposure, and how we can follow your incredible podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. Where else can we contact you? And maybe you could give us our final farewell message. Well, first of all, really, thank you. I am truly humbled and and honored to be on on your show. I really, 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 truly appreciate it. Um, Toxic Exposure is available everywhere. Uh, You can uh, get your copy on Amazon. Um, It's right there. It's Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or through my publisher's website, Johns Hopkins University Press. Um, and you can get links to all of this on my own website. I have a website, www.shadinabhan.com. Um, as you mentioned, Kim, I have a, my own podcast that airs every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Chicago time. It is called Healthcare Unfiltered, and it is uh, general healthcare topics. Um, it is not only oncology, it's a lot of things. And I did actually air a couple of episodes on Uh, glyphosate and on the book um, i aired one on the day the book launched in february 2023 with uh, professor nasim talib who is a professor in uh, here in uh, in uh, the u.s and he is very anti-gmo and he was very supportive of the book and i appreciated uh, his help um uh, so it's available everywhere, um, and it's also available on audio. I actually narrated the book, so if you are not sick and tired of my voice, uh, you can also hear the book narrated by me. Um, as far as the second book, uh, it's not available yet until next year. Um, so if I did not mess things up, hopefully I'll come back on your show next year, and it's going to be available. It's about demystifying cancer and helping patients and families as they go through a journey of cancer, hopefully making things much easier for them. Thank you so much for being on up for a chat. Yes, beautiful girl. I knew you'd. Oh, sorry. I know. I just. I um. In, do you have any um social handles like Instagram or Facebook? Yes, yes. Uh, folks can actually find me on Twitter uh, at Chadi Nabhan. Um, and uh, I usually put uh, uh, some videos of uh, my podcast. Uh, you can follow me on uh, 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 Twitter. I'm also on Instagram, uh, Shadi underscore healthcare unfiltered, C-H-A-D-I underscore healthcare unfiltered. Uh, and all of my podcasts are actually aired on YouTube as well, because uh, some folks like to see the guests and, and, and watch them and interact with them. So I, I have a YouTube channel. Um, uh, a very uh, amateur one. It's called Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. So you can find it there and you can watch all of the podcast episodes uh, as well uh, while you're at it. We will make sure that all of that information is in the show notes. Please, please keep doing the work that you do, sharing the love. Cindy and I are blown away. We are absolutely delighted and excited to have you on the show. Cindy, is there one final message you'd love to to share with beautiful Shadi or our listener or and our listener? <laughs> well, I just think that everybody should read this book. I'm I've, I'm already 
signed up your Instagram. I'm signed up on you. <laughs> As you're saying it, I'm going through it and I've signed up for your podcast. So I'm really excited to listen to them, but I'll be ordering the book and I look forward to your next book. I think that you've obviously done the research. You've obviously have an incredible amount of knowledge that people need to know. And as you said in the beginning, you know, first of all, we must, uh, I guess, make an aware, create awareness, and then we must educate, find an alternative um, and give examples for people. And I think you've done this through this whole podcast. And I'm now excited to, instead of just saying, when a, a farmer says to me, well, I'm okay, and I've been doing it all my life, I'm actually going to go with what you've said, and I'm going to do my best to make a few changes, at least in people's lives. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, your knowledge, your, you know, everything. I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by this podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you, what you're doing, and, and thanks for having me. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.